live from New York City, it's the Gary Knoll Show. And now, your host, Gary Knoll. Hi, everyone. I'm Gary Knoll, and I'd like to welcome you to my program. We're here to talk about issues that can empower us so that we can live healthier, happier, longer lives. We have a lot of hassle in our lives, a lot of stress. We have a lot of disappointments. We have some wonderful and exciting and exhilarating moments, and those are interspersed with a lot of unnecessary drama. Confusion, who to believe, what to believe, what to eat, what to drink. We're told to drink two glasses of alcohol a day, but we're not told what kind of alcohol. We assume it's wine, but a lot of people are not given specifics, so they drink gin and bourbon and and rye and uh, vodka. But it's good because their doctors told them to. I had a man sit across from me in my office who drank two glasses, large glasses of scotch a day, and then couldn't figure out why he had fatty liver, cirrhosis of the liver, and heart disease. His physician told him to drink, and he did. Big mistake. So this is the program that tries to make some sense out of all this nonsense. Today, we're going to take a look at many different issues. We're going to have an interesting issue for you to call in and share your points of view. The latest on health and healing. Let's begin. The Japanese have been known to have the longest life expectancy of any nation in the world. There are groups in Crete and also in Formosa that have also lived long lives. Uh, in Formosa, that they're descendants of Japanese. And, and in the Mediterranean, the Cretes have one of the longest life uh, spans, but they're a relatively small group of people. The Japanese are a larger group of people. So what is it about the Japanese that allow them to live a long life? It turns out it's not in the genes. It is in the diet more than anything else. Now, this is mainstream science talking from Science Daily. And this is from the American College of Cardiology. And here's what they have to say about this. And I'll quote this. It says, if you're fishing for ways to reduce the risk of heart disease, you might start with seafood-rich diet typically served up in Japan. According to the newest research, a lifetime of eating tuna sardines, salmon, and other fish appears to protect Japanese men from clogged arteries despite other cardiovascular risk factors. The research is published in the Journal of the American College of Cardiology. And it comes from the omega-3 fatty acids found in abundance in oily fish. By the way, you can also, as an aside, find omega-3 fatty acids in vegan sources as well. And then it goes on to talk. The article talks about all the different things that happen in the body when you're able to turn off inflammation due to the uh, foods that we eat, cigarette smoking, coffee. Um, in my opinion, caffeine and coffee itself would never be allowed into our diet at all. It would be considered toxic, detrimental to our well-being if we just looked at the science, but because so many people consume it and it's such a part of the ritual of waking up each day that people don't want to know about its bad effects. In fact, Starbucks is now the third largest uh, food uh, restaurant retailer out there. That shows you how many people are hooked on the beverage. But if you got rid of that, you could also get rid of a lot of esophageal inflammation, 
which leads to esophageal cancer. Gastric reflux, which is virtually epidemic, is so common people don't even discuss it as if it's something unusual. And also bodies that are highly acidic. And when your body's highly acidic, then you're more prone to having local acidosis pain, pain in your joints, and pain in your musculature. So those are the things that we have to pay attention to. If you're exercising, you're slowing down the atrophy of the brain. Now, we've known that exercise is good for everything, but the International Conference on Alzheimer's Disease show that the people who exercise daily have a substantially reduced problem in the areas of the brain which control memory. And the MRI study showed that exercise positively affected the hippocampus region of the patient's brains, an area which is important for both memory and balance. And, by the way, one of the areas of the brain that is damaged when a person has Alzheimer's is the hippocampus. And so that's why every single person on any health protocol, I always have them starting by doing one half hour of power walking a day. And then from there, increase it to where they're doing an hour of power walking. And not just regular walking. You can walk uh, an hour or two a day and it not do you any good at all. You have to do far more uh, than that. You have to go beyond that. In effect, you have to walk vigorously, really moving your arms and moving your hips. And uh, that then is called power walking. And after power walking comes race walking. Well, I'm not asking you to race walk, but I am asking you to power walk. Regular slow walking is not going to benefit you at all. Okay? So that is what we want to do. If you take vitamins, that can help block post-meal grogginess in diabetics. And I'm going to suggest the following vitamins will be very good for you. First of all, chromium, chromium picanolate is outstanding. Vitamin C at 1,000 milligrams. Vitamin E at 800 units with 200 units of tocotrienols. Now that was this study and it's a Danish excuse me, it's a a diet that was meant to help people who were diabetic. It was done at the University of Toronto and it showed that if you had the vitamins it makes all the difference in the world. So if you have a bad meal, a fatty meal, french fries, hot dogs, hamburgers, just take, uh, take all that into account if you're diabetic and take your vitamins, and then you don't get the brain fog afterwards. According to the latest research, you've been lied to about cholesterol and fats. For decades, according to Paul Fass of Natural News, for decades we have been indoctrinated that cholesterol from saturated fat is the major harbinger of heart disease and death. The result has been big profits for unhealthy, cheaply produced, low-fat, no-fat foods like margarine, and then big pharmaceutical statin drugs. Over several decades, this propaganda has diminished or even destroyed the health of millions while killing thousands who have been put on cholesterol-lowering statin drugs. Simply put, cholesterol is the major heart disease threat, is disinformation. It is not true. Now let's talk about bad versus real science. The original study that started the whole cholesterol heart disease hypothesis was conducted on rabbits. They were fed enormous quantities of butter and lard daily, equivalent to a quart of butter for a human being a day. But those animals are herbivores, not omnivores. And herbivores 
are not equipped to digest animal proteins and fats. So when a similar study was conducted years later on rats, which, like humans, are omnivores, there were no negative consequences whatsoever. More impressive are the three epidemiological human studies involving tens of thousands of subjects over three generations. They all discover higher death rates among those with lower cholesterol counts. Those studies were the Framingham study, the Honolulu Heart Program study, the Japanese Lipid Intervention Trial. Many agree that stress coupled with heavy refined carbohydrate and junk food diets are the sources of most obesity, diabetes, and chronic inflammation and heart disease. Cholesterol is essential to many metabolic functions and forms 20% of our brains as well as part of our cell walls. Depression is often the result of low, very low blood cholesterol levels. Our bodies make some cholesterol while regulating cholesterol blood levels. So if you consume too much cholesterol, the body compensates by making less. So that does not mean that we should be eating high cholesterol foods. We should not. Because when you eat meat, which is high in cholesterol, you're also getting arachidonic acid. And that can cause inflammation in the body. Very bad for you. You want to use things that are the good fats. Extra virgin coconut oil. It is a miracle food. Coconut oil, taking a tablespoon a day, terrific for you. Cooking with it, because it has high heat tolerance. In fact, it would be macadamia nut oil, coconut oil, and mustard seed oil would be the three cooking oils only. The only time you ever cook with virgin olive oil is at the end of your cooking when the heat has been turned down so that you do not in any way burn the olive oil. And therefore, it has that nice... A sweet quality to it. The unrefined, cold-pressed, polyunsaturated plant-based oils have positive fatty acid value. So you want to balance your omega-3 fatty acids with your omega-1s. And hemp oil is also a phenomenal oil. <clears throat> you can get flaxseed oil, which is great. In fact, having a teaspoon of flaxseed oil on your health drink each day and have I would say two to three tablespoons of olive oil in your salad a day. Eat an avocado, that's great. It's an unprocessed oil. A handful of walnuts, terrific for you. And almonds and pistachios and pine nuts, all good for you. Eating meat, no. You don't need that. And even the grass-fed livestock, treated humanely, well, it's still an animal that's going to be slaughtered. It doesn't need to be, and it's... And you don't need the amino acids. Because remember, what are you eating when you eat protein? You're getting amino acids, the building blocks protein. So if you get 10 ounces of protein from a steak, or you get 10 ounces of protein from, let's say, some uh, lentil soup, it's still protein. It's the same amino acids, just in different configurations. And you're going to live a longer life as a vegan Recently, I had an article on vegetarianism, a three-part, published in the Town's Letter for Doctors and Physicians. And as one might expect, many of the doctors out there don't believe in vegetarianism and took issue with it. So I decided to do something that would really be an education for people. I am almost complete in the rebuttal, and I'm using about a hundred pages of scientific data 
to support that on every level, a vegan, healthy vegan diet is much better than an animal-based diet. And uh, everything from your heart being healthier, your arteries not clogged, you don't have the byproducts causing inflammation. So I'm going through every single one of these actual scientific studies to show you that science, good science, real science, is on the side of those of us who choose to eat no animal flesh at all. And finally, um, in the area of health and healing and nutrition, in our environment, when people come to see me and they say, I'm really surprised, I'm, you know, I was healthy until, until they had their stroke or heart attack or the tumor was found in their prostate or ovary or breast or brain. It's not true. What I want to share with you now is something that even mainstream science is finally recognizing. And that is that our body is made up of systems. We then live in multiple systems. And you have to look for all the early warning systems collapse. There are going to be fluctuations prior to the collapse of any system. If our ecosystem collapses, it's not suddenly and an overnight it happens. There always builds up to it. It was like driving up to Maine, beautiful state, and then flying over Maine. And when you're driving up the highway, as far as you can see back through the trees, you see these wonderful, tall, beautiful spruce and pines. But fly in a helicopter or small plane over the same highway but you're, let's say, a thousand feet up, and you'll see that it just looks like a, a moonscape. You'll see eutrophied dead lakes, acid rain. Ah, so you don't see it on the highway. You simply have to look where the actual collapse is, where the warning signs are. It's no different than if you have all that oil, which is stuck to the bottom of the Gulf of Mexico and is washed in, and it's on the algae, and it's in the fish, and the fish are eaten by larger fish. And then someone says, well, I'll have a gumbo, you know, in a restaurant, or I'll, I'm in the Keys, I'll have something there. Understand that what you can't see are the toxins, but they're there. But prior to you getting sick, the whole ecosystem that you're a part of, the Gulf of Mexico, is already sick. And the warning signs are there. You can choose to pay attention to warning signs or not. I've said many times there's no such thing as being healthy and overweight. It's not humanly possible. Yet we'll try to say, well, I'm fit as a fiddle and I'm overweight. And I'll say, how do you know you're fit as a fiddle? Have you looked in your brain to see the amyloid plaque? You can't feel it. You can't see it unless you actually look. Have you looked in your arteries to see how much clogging goes on? Have you looked at the nephron cells, the tubules in your kidneys, to see how little filtration is going on because of the alcohol you consumed? Have you looked in your liver to see the consequences of the medications you've been taking? No. Well, then, how do you know that you're fit as a fiddle because you manifest no classically defined illness? Remember, every single thing in life is a part of a system. Systems are integrated and interrelated. Look always for the warning signal that the ecosystem, the body system, the political system is in collapse. Any fluctuations you'll see before the fall.
It's no different than no two, no married couple wakes up who've lived a perfectly happy, contented life and decide that day they're going to get a divorce. There's a build-up. There's the fluctuations between what is constructive and destructive until one day what is destructive or in, unacceptable is no longer compatible for what is. So whatever you're doing that's right is outweighed by what you've done that's wrong. The problem is how do we come to grips with the idea that someone's saying goodbye to us over something insignificant in and of itself? True. Most of the reasons that finally cause something to happen are insignificant as a single episode. But you've got to attach that to everything that preceded it. Remember, everything in life is one of two choices. You're only going to ever make in life one of two choices. In everything you do, you're either going to do the right thing or the wrong thing. The trouble is you will not always know whether it's right or wrong in the moment you're doing it. Unless you're texting while driving. And then you look up and boom, you've just hit someone. Then you know. That's how it works. But otherwise, think of all the times that you've been on the cell phone while driving and there was no accident. Think of all the times that you smoke cigarettes, no lung cancer. Think of all the times you drank alcohol, no liver cirrhosis, until the day comes when you do have it. Then suddenly, I was healthy yesterday. How is that possible? No, you weren't healthy yesterday. You just weren't paying attention to the warning signals. And the warning signals in our society are everywhere. There was a book called Don't Sweat the Small Stuff and Everything is Small Stuff. And I say just the opposite is true. It is the small stuff that we should pay attention to because if you can deal with the small issues in an appropriate, positive manner, they don't accumulate negatively. If you don't deal with the small stuff, one day you end up with a heart attack, bankrupt, lost relationships, and then you wonder why. What I say, what I do. Well, it's not just today in this moment what you said or did. It's the thousand things that preceded it. Death by a thousand cuts. And we just seem to have an aversion to understanding how all this comes together. That said, here's from Science Daily to put the dot on this statement. Quote, Researchers eavesdropping on complex signals emanating from a remote Wisconsin lake have detected what they say is an unmistakable warning, a death knell of the impending collapse of the lake's aquatic ecosystem. Researchers have found that models used to assess catastrophic changes in economic and medical systems can also predict environmental collapse. Stock market crashes, epileptic seizures, ecological breakdowns are all preceded by a measurable increase in variance, be it fluctuations in the human brain, the Dow Jones Index, or in the case of Wisconsin Lake Chlorophyll. The results are published in the current issue of Science So what this is saying is they can tell that a lake is going to die. When you look, you can't see it. How's it going to die? How's a lake die? Well, it eutrophies. Just like giant areas of the Gulf of Mexico are now dying. Why? Because there's no oxygen. Dead zones. But you wouldn't know that unless you paid attention. So now they're seeing that a buildup of chlorophyll in the lake more than what the lake can process is going to cause reduction in aquatic life and reduction in oxygenation, and hence the lake dies. Watch in your life for fluctuations before a crisis, and it's always going to be there. I'm Gary Nall. Back in a moment. Please stay with us.
section today, there is a new report out that the Arctic warming may raise global sea levels by five feet. Now, remember, it, it was only supposed to be raised three inches in the next hundred years. All right. Well, that was just four years ago they said that. Now it's five feet in the not-too-far future, 1.6 meters. And this is according to the latest study. Why? Because the Arctic is melting and Greenland ice is melting, and that's raising the world's sea levels by up to five feet. Now, that's going to completely eliminate the capacity to live in London, Shanghai, New York City, a lot of places. You raise that by five feet, you're in a lot of trouble. And uh, But what are we doing about it? How about nothing? And so I'm just giving you a heads up that... The Arctic glaciers and the ice caps and Greenland ice sheet contribute over 40% of the global sea level rise um, observed in the last five years. So now we're in that area where it's going to get warmer and there's going to be more sea ice melting, more glacier ice melting, more rising in the uh, water around the world. And we're going to ask ourselves, gee whiz, why didn't we know about it? And it's not going to be in a long future. It's going to be in the near future. So I'm just giving you a heads up on all this. Now I want to go uh, in. <clears throat> I want to go to something that uh, Michelle Alexander from Sojourners wrote, and this is our issue of the day: the failed drug war has created a human rights nightmare. How can this happen in our country and go virtually undiscussed? I'll quote this, and. Um, I think that this is very important. This is alternate. So much about our racial reality today is little more than a mirage. The promised land of racial equality wavers, quivers just out of our reach in the barren desert of our new colorblind political landscape. It looks so good from a distance. Barack Obama, our nation's first black president, standing in the Rose Garden behind a podium, looking handsome, dignified, and in charge. Flip the channel, and there's Michelle Obama, a brown-skinned woman, digging a garden in the backyard of the White House, and not as a servant or a maid, but as the First Lady, schooling the nation on better health uh, and the need to be good stewards of our planet. Flip the channel again, and there's the whole Obama family, exiting Air Force One, waving to the crowd, descending the flight of stairs, a gorgeous black family living in the White House, ruling America, cheered by the world. Drive a few blocks from the White House, and you find the other America. You find you're still in the desert, dying of thirst, wondering what went wrong and where that turn was that we should have made, and how you managed to miss the promised land, though you reached for it with all your might. A vast new racial undercast now exists in America. Though their plight is rarely mentioned on the evening news, Obama won't mention it, the Tea Party won't mention it, media pundits would rather talk about anything else, the members of the underclass are, all, are largely invisible to those of us who have jobs, live in decent neighborhoods, and zoom around on freeways, past, passing by the virtual and literal prisons in which they live. But here are the facts. 
There are more African-American adults under correctional control today in prison or jail or on probation or parole than there were in slaves in 1850, a decade before the Civil War began. In major urban areas like Chicago, Obama's hometown, the majority of working-age African-American men have criminal records and are thus subject to legalized discrimination for the rest of their lives. Millions of people in the United States, primarily poor people of color, are denied the very rights supposedly won in the civil rights movement, the right to vote, the right to serve on juries, the right to be free from discrimination in employment, housing, access to education, and public benefits. They have been branded criminals and felons, and now find themselves relegated to a permanent second-class status for the rest of their lives. They live in a parallel social universe, the other America. We as a nation are in deep denial about how this came to pass. On the rare occasions when the existence of them, the others, the ghetto dwellers, those locked up and locked out, is publicly acknowledged, standard excuses are trotted out for their condition. We're told black culture, bad schools, poverty, broken homes are to blame. Almost no one admits, we declared war. We declared war on them. We declared a war on the most vulnerable people in our society and then blamed them for the wreckage. And yet, that is precisely what we did. We declared a war known as the war on drugs. The war has driven the quadrupling of our prison population in a very short period. The vast majority of the startling increase in incarceration in America is traceable to the arrest and imprisonment of poor people of color for nonviolent drug-related offenses. Families have been torn apart, young lives shattered, as parents grieve the loss of loved ones to the system, often hiding their grief under the cloak of shame. Politicians claim that the enemy in this war is this thing drug. Not a group of people, but the facts prove otherwise. African Americans have been admitted to prison on drug charges at a rate of 5,700% higher than whites. Let me repeat that. 5,000 700% higher rates of incarceration for African Americans than for whites. In some states, 90% of all drug offenders sent to prison have been African American. The rate of Latino imprisonment has been staggering as well. Although the majority of illegal drug users and dealers in the United States are, you guessed it, whites. Three-fourths of all people in prison for drug offenses are black and Latino. Studies have consistently shown that people of all colors use and sell drugs at remarkably similar rates. Yet this war has been waged almost exclusively in poor ghetto communities. For those who are tempted to imagine that the goal of the war has been to root out violent offenders or drug kingpins, think again. Federal funding flows to those state and local law enforcement agencies that boost dramatically the sheer volume of drug arrest. It's a numbers game. Agencies don't get rewarded for bringing down drug bosses or arresting violent offenders. They're rewarded in cash for arresting people in mass. Ghetto communities are swept for the low-hanging fruit, which generally means young people hanging on the street corner, walking to school or in the subway, or driving around with their friends. They're stopped and searched for any reason or no reason at all. In just one recent year, four of five drug arrests were for possession of only a one of five for sales. And in the 1990s, the period of the most drastic expansion of the drug war, nearly 80% of the increase in drug arrests were for people using marijuana. 
a drug that is less harmful than alcohol and tobacco and least as prevalent in middle-class white communities and on college campuses as it is in poor communities of color. The drug war, though, has been waged almost exclusively in poor ghetto communities. It is here in the poverty-stricken, racially segregated ghettos where the war on poverty has been abandoned and the factory jobs disappeared that the drug war has been waged with the reality that is so ferocious. SWAT teams are deployed here. Buy-bust operations are concentrated here. Drug raids into the schools and housing projects occur here. Stop-and-frisk operations are conducted on the street. If the tactics of the drug war are employed in middle-class white neighborhoods or on college campuses, there would be a public outrage. The war would end overnight. But here in the ghetto, the stops, the searches, the sweeps, the mass arrests are treated like an accepted fact of life, like the separate water fountains of the earlier era. By the millions, people are arrested, marched into courtrooms in shackles, and when released, they're stripped of their right to vote and their right to serve on juries. Discrimination against them is officially legal. Barred from public housing and denied any food stamps, millions find they are deemed unworthy of the nation's care or concern. Jobless, hungry, without shelter, and riddled with shame, they're trapped in the desert wasteland. The majority of those released from prison return within months of their release, unable to make it on the outside. The racial mirage wavers in the distance mockingly. It is impossible to imagine anything like this happening if the enemy in the drug war were white. Economist Glenn Lowry made this observation in his book, The Anatomy of Racial Inequality. He noted that it is nearly impossible to imagine anything remotely similar to mass incarceration happening to young white men can, or women. Can you envision a system that would enforce drug laws almost exclusively against young white men and largely ignore drug crime among black men? Can you imagine large majorities of white men being rounded up for minor drug offenses, placed under the control of a criminal justice system, labeled felons, and then subjected to a lifetime of discrimination, scorn, and exclusion? Can you imagine this happening while most black men landed decent jobs or trotted off to college? No, we cannot. If such a thing occurred, it would, it would occasion a dismissed, it would be dismissed upon reflection. Something had gone wrong, we would be told. The large-scale criminalization of white men would disturb us to our core. So the critical question becomes, what disturbs us? What upsets us? What seems anonymous? What is contrary to expectation? Or more to the point, who do we care about? An answer to the last question may be found by considering the drastically different manner that we as a nation responded to drunk driving in the mid-1980s as compared to crack cocaine during the 1980s. At the same time the crack epidemic was making headlines, a broad-based grassroots movement was underway to address the widespread and sometimes fatal problem of drunk driving. Unlike the drug war, which was initiated by political elites long before ordinary people identified drug crime as an issue of extraordinary concern, the movement to crack down on drunk drivers was a bottom-up movement led most notably by mothers whose families were shattered by deaths caused by drunk driving. Media coverage of the movement peaked in 1988 when a drunk driver traveling the wrong way on Interstate 71 in Kentucky caused a head-on collision with a school bus. Twenty-seven people died and dozens more were injured in the ensuing fire. The tragic accident, known as the Carrollton bus disaster, was one of the worst in U.S. history. 
In the aftermath, several parents of the victims became actively involved in Mothers Against Drunk Driving, and one became its national president. Throughout the 1980s, drunk driving was a regular topic in the media, and the term designated driver became part of the American lexicon. At the close of the decade, drunk drivers were responsible for 22,000 deaths annually, while overall alcohol-related deaths were up to 100,000 a year. By contrast, during the same time period, there was no prevalence in the statistical increase at all on crack, much less crack-related deaths. In fact, the number of deaths related to all illegal drugs combined was tiny compared to the number of deaths caused by drunk drivers. The total of all drug-related deaths due to AIDS, drug overdose, or violence associated with illegal drug was estimated at 21,000 annually, less than the number of deaths directly caused by drunk drivers and a small fraction of the numbers of alcohol-related deaths that occur every year. In response to growing concern fueled by advocacy groups such as MAD and by the media coverage of drunk driving fatalities, most states adopted tougher laws to punish drunk driving. Numerous states now have some type of mandatory sentencing for this offense, typically two days in jail for the first offense and two to ten days for the second offense. New laws governing crack cocaine were passed at the same time as legislators were getting tough on drunk drivers. But notice the contrast. While drunk drivers would spend two days in prison, possession of a tiny amount of drug carries a mandatory minimum sentence of five years in federal prison. In fact, some people are serving life sentences for minor drug offenses. In Harlem versus Michigan, the state Supreme Court upheld a sentence of life imprisonment for a defendant with no previous convictions who tried to sell 23 ounces of crack cocaine. The court concluded that life imprisonment was not, quote, cruel and unusual punishment in violation of the Eighth Amendment, despite the fact that no other developed nation in the world imposes life imprisonment for the first-time drug offense. The vastly different sentences afforded drunk drivers and drug offenders speak volumes regarding who is viewed as disposable, someone to be purged from the body politic, and who is not. Drunk drivers are predominantly white and male. White men comprise 68% of the rest for drunk driving, with new mandatory minimums for the offenses were being adopted. They were generally charged with misdemeanors, and typically receive sentences involving fines, license suspension, and community service. Although drunk driving carries far greater risk of violent death than the use or sale of illegal drugs, the societal response to drunk drivers was generally emphasized keeping the person functional and in society while attempting to respond to the dangerous behavior through treatment and counseling. People charged with drug offenses, though, are disproportionately people of color and are poor. They're typically charged with felonies and sentenced to prison. And if when they're released, they become members of an underclass system no longer locked up, but locked out for the rest of their lives, so be it. And in conclusion, this is not a problem begging merely for policy reform. Much more is required of us. If we fail as a nation to awaken to the basic humanity of all these cycling in and out of prison today, And if we fail to commit ourselves to ending mass incarceration, future generations will judge us harshly. Human rights nightmare is occurring on our watch. And just a few other thoughts on this. I believe that we should decriminalize all drugs. I believe that we should set up counseling, professional humanistic counseling centers, and holistic medical treatment centers in every town community in the United States. I believe that we should stop privatizing the corporate, with a corporate interest and profit at stake, the prison system. Those are my thoughts.
I'd like to hear your thoughts. And while you're thinking about calling in, let's go over and say hello to uh, Elizabeth in studio. Hi, Elizabeth. Hello, Gary. Hi. Um, Gary, um, over the last three years, you've spoken on the subject of government waste. Um, there was an article on the front page of the New York Post entitled Wasteland, New York's Staggering Squander List, and it shows just how much waste there is in the city and state. For example, it says there are one million square feet of unused office space in New York City alone. So, say the average cost of office space was $30 per square foot a month, that would equate to $30 million every month and $120 million a year that could be made from this. It goes on to say that there are 2,000 vendors providing duplicate products and services, 425 toll-free numbers that are not being used, state agency rented offices are lying vacant and unused, and that could save $30 million a year. But the underlying issue, um, that one that you've spoken in the past, is that the Liberals and Democrats' view is not to touch anything, uh, any government agencies, while the Republicans believe in getting rid of government. Which do you believe is the correct approach here, please? They're both wrong. You cannot make gross generalities that um, get rid of uh, whole agencies of government or don't touch government. Everything has to be studied with a sense of care of what is the purpose of government. It is to serve the people. How best can it do it? By addressing the actual needs and without any form of insider benefit to those who are part of the system. Now, if you then had outside independent oversight of every single governmental agency, then without difficulty at all, you would be able to make an agency work. For example, right now, you can go into any state, local, and federal agency and find multiple duplications. You'll find people doing the same work over and over again. If, for example, in the Defense Department, there was just one audit that was done that showed that there were 10 separate contractors producing the same uh, product, and that meant nine were not needed, but they all came through different procurement processes because of who was lobbying on their behalf, former generals, former admirals, former top people who had access. So what if we didn't use those? Then we should ask ourselves, are we really uh, creating something that we need? Look at the Department of Energy. There's, it's not placing its, its uh, thou, ten, over 12,000 employees on an effort to try to get us renewables. Instead, the majority of the people within the Department of Energy are beholding to uh, groups such as the oil cartel, the coal cartel, the nuclear cartel, uh, the gas cartel and gas fracking, and bio, biofuels. So then you have people working, but not in where the benefit of society will uh, come about by all the money we're spending. So we do not have independent, objective oversight of which agencies we need to downsize and how we need to streamline it. If we did that, then we could do terrific. And But we don't have that, and as a result, we're paying astronomical amounts of money for bloated bureaucracies that are inefficient, virtually corrupt in many cases, and controlled by lobbyists and people that they work for and not the average American. The average American can't catch a break now. If you have a home that is being foreclosed on, who's going to help you? The bank? No. The bank is going to get helped and has been helped uh, by by the Federal Reserve, but the Federal Reserve is not going to help you. Well, then how does the Federal Reserve serve the interests of the people? It doesn't. I mean, it's just 
All you have to do is look at the look at this. Then we could reduce. I believe, and I've I've done this a careful study of this. I believe that we could reduce approximately forty percent of all federal spending in these uh, in these bureaucracies and make our government far more accountable, far more beneficial to the people's actual needs. So the question is, do we need certain agencies? Yes. Do we need certain oversight and, and rules and regulation? Absolutely. But do we need everything we currently have? No. You could take 80% of the, the budget for the military-industrial spy complex and eliminate it and save that. You could close down 90% of all of our foreign bases. You could close down probably 80% of all the bases in the United States. But which politician is going to give up the votes by saying, yes, close the, close the unnecessary uh, waste, uh, wasted uh, base money spent in my state? They're not going to do that. So we can't trust the politicians to do the right thing. We can't trust the media to report on it. So then we have to look at individuals and organizations that are telling us the truth and then align ourselves with that truth and then protest against it. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Let's say hello now. We're going to go over. Uh, Elizabeth, I'll, I'll list, I'll, you'll have more in the next hour, but let's say hello uh, to Ted from Newark, New Jersey. Ted, you're on the air. Hi. Hi, Ted. How are you? Good. My only comment is, is is that, I mean, if you look at, you know, white and people of color's relations throughout history, is that you've always find you've always found, whether it be in Africa and colonization of, of, of African people, you've always found that greed is the driver that white seems, the white culture seem to breed uh, to dominate whatever indigenous race they, they come across in, in various parts of the world. I mean, you can paint it anywhere from India all the way through to, you know, every country in Africa, and, and it goes on and on and on. I mean, it's just, I, I don't know what it is, but the, the goal seems to be to dominate and not collaborate. I would agree with that. Just keep in mind, when, when a person has a certain degree of power, almost always, with few exceptions, that power corrupts them. And then they want to maintain the power. And therefore, once you achieve power, almost all your energy is in maintaining it. And then you have to surround yourself with people who are willing to agree with your principles, whatever they may be, or your policies, whatever they may be, to maintain your power. And hence, power then is used discriminately against virtually anyone that would challenge it. And then you're able to use people, marginalize people, based upon what you need. And that's why you don't think before you buy a pair of Nikes, who actually made these shoes? What conditions did they work under? How much were they paid? Were they allowed to unionize? Did they have, uh, did they work uh, decent hours or were they just worked like uh, almost to death? We don't have the consciousness in a consumer-based society that lives mainly through the services that we buy and rent and lease and use about where everything comes from. If we did, then we would think again. And then we would challenge this whole idea that that we don't want to support anything that is based upon dehumanizing another human being, using and abusing another human being for us to have whatever it is that we feel we need. I agree wholeheartedly. Ted, thank you very much. I appreciate thank your input. Jerry from, uh, where are you at, Jerry? In what Arkansas? state? Arkansas. Jerry, you're on the air. Yeah, my, my question is about, what do you feel about Osama bin Laden? And not only him, but his prophet, Muhammad. What are your feelings about it? The whole ideology that this guy was a prophet, and what did he prophesize? Well, let, let, let me put, I, that's not what I have time for because I have to go for my guest in a moment here, but I will say this. I believe that we should have taken Osama bin Laden prisoner. 
Am I happy he's off the streets? You bet. He was an evil person. <clears throat> but under in a court of law, we could have asked him certain questions. He is being blamed for sponsoring every form of terrorism throughout the Middle East and further. All right. Where did he get his money since the uh, government, uh, since 9-11, has been on top of every transaction that showed wire transfers or money, especially in all of the Middle Eastern countries, including Saudi Arabia? How did he end up living in Pakistan in a military environment, in an intelligence environment, for so long unless he had collaboration, which he did? Who were they? Where were they at in the military? Were these people that were meeting regularly with our, our Defense Department, our, our security forces? Uh, and, and also, how many things was he actually supporting and behind? Which things did we give him credit for doing that someone else that's still out there actually should also be the focus of? Um, what did he really know before 9-11 when the Taliban wanted to give him over to George Bush prior to 9-11, and Bush refused after Bush met with the Taliban, once in uh, Washington, once in Texas. And then after 9-11, the Taliban wanted to give him. Why didn't we take him? What did he know about this? Who were the characters involved? Who protected him? How did he get out of Tora Bora? What, what, was the, what did he find out? How did he keep escaping? There's so many questions that I have that I'd like to know. Now we won't. Okay? Thank you for your call. Have a nice day, everyone. show is produced in our New York City studio. The producer is Richard Gale. The engineer is Matt Bogart. All shows are archived by Joe Kemp. The chief archivist is Sharon Pride, and the program director is Jason Taubenfeld.